Exciting news at This Week Health. Starting May 16th, our keynote show is moving to Thursdays. Catch every episode weekly on our This Week Health conference channel. Don't miss conversations with top health system leaders designed to transform healthcare one connection at a time. Subscribe to This Week Health conference and stay updated every Thursday. Welcome to This Week Health. My name is Bill Russell. I'm a former CIO for a 16 hospital system and creator of This Week Health, a set of channels dedicated to keeping health IT staff current and engaged. Today, we have an interview in action from the 2023 Spring Conferences Vive in Nashville and HIMSS in Chicago. Special thanks to our partners, CDW, Rubric, Sectra, and Trellix for choosing to invest in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. You can check them out on our website, thisweekhealth.com. Now, on to this interview. All right, here we are at Vive for another interview in action, and we're joined by Michael Hasselberg, who is the Chief Digital Health Officer at University of Rochester Medical Center, and Justin Norton, Dr. Justin Norton, GSR Ventures. And uh, gentlemen, welcome. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Thank you for having us. You have a really cool title, really cool job. Well, tell us about your job first. You know, my job came into place at the beginning of COVID where we didn't really have a strategy of how to become a digital first health system and the CEO kind of tapped me on the shoulder and asked, could I create the strategy? And so as the Chief Digital Health Officer, it's very high level strategy, everything from patient portal through doing AI in our clinical service lines. And then I also kind of co-lead the innovation arm of our health system, so frontier technologies, working with venture, working with industry, working with retail. I get to have all the fun. So since I just talked to Greg, your CMIO, and he laid out a five-year strategy, which I think is the strategy you're talking about, and went into detail, I want to talk to you guys about establishing an effective investment arm within a health system. This is not for the faint of heart. We've had some successes. Obviously, we can look at UPMC, we can look at Ascension, and we've had some failures, and I'm not going to say those names. And I'm wondering, what does it take to set it up effectively? I mean, the failures in my mind is when the leadership doesn't have a long enough perspective and they're like three years in, hey, we didn't get any exits, we're not getting a return, we're out. What's the best way to approach it? Justin, we'll start with you. Sure, so th this is a conversation, not to pick at any old wounds, but we can go, we can spend the whole time on. But in terms of how venture can work with health systems, fundamentally, and this is why we're here together, is there's so many ways to work together. You know, we sit in Silicon Valley at GSR Ventures looking at early stage health technology companies. Fundamentally, if we're selling to a provider, we need innovative health systems where the leadership is bought in to try new startups, where do they fit in to that strategic plan where they can actually add value and it makes sense, and then where can you help cut down an 18 to 24 month sales cycle into three to six months and actually get something off the So ground. this is a partnership. This isn't you setting it up. The University of Rochester setting it up to try to make money from investing in these companies. No, initially this was set up to create another pipeline where I could get best of breed technology into my health system and help maybe co-develop, help develop that, that new value propositions. But it's leading towards, hey, maybe we should take on some more financial risk in these yeah. companies. And so we do not have digital health venture arm yet, but it's something that we're actively exploring because we have set up a really nice pipeline where we work with a lot of early stage startups that are coming from the West Coast, coming from places like 
Palo Alto and Menlo Park and Seattle, and we're helping these companies be successful, so why not us participating in some of that financial upside of those companies? Yeah, that makes, that, that makes a lot of sense. Give me an idea of when those companies come in, how do they engage? How do you get them to engage with your health system? So one of the things that makes the University of Rochester unique as an academic health system, compared to most academic health systems left in the country, is we're fully integrated into its parent university. Most academic health systems, separate budgets, they're affiliated with their parent university. We made a core decision, not what we're gonna do. So what makes us unique is I actually get to co-lead a true digital health innovation incubator where I have faculty from the engineering school, computer science department, data science institute, music school, business school under the same roof as faculty from the medical school, dental school, and nursing school. Digital health startup comes in, we've got the chops to help co-develop, we can do the integration into the electronic health record, we can, our clinical teams from both nursing to physicians to physical therapists all under one roof can help think about how do we build you into the clinical workflows, operational workflows of the health system, and then we can partner with our business and data analytic team. In a lot of cases, how do we come up with what is your value proposition to a health system? Because what you raise money from this guy over here may not be what I actually want to purchase your product for. And so really the startup companies come through our innovation incubator and we wrap our arms around them and we want to see them successful because the companies that we work with are pushing the larger health system strategy forward. It's interesting, you just described something that I get a lot of different perspectives on. I get a perspective from some founders and they say, we thought we were going to do this, we raised money to do this, but then we got engaged with the health system and we sort of lost our way. Like, you could lose your way in that, especially the large academic medical centers could sort of swallow you up and then say, we started as this company, now we're this company. Now that could be a good thing, or that can be a muddying of the waters kind of thing. How do you coach them in that process? So that's such a key point. And take an example, a company like Artisite, which I know we've talked, we spoke about before, augmented AI platform really can touch any number of issues across the health system. And each health system will have a slightly different priority list of what they want. Right. And so we need to work with our founders and say, what are the key issues that Michael has, but also Providence will have, Stanford will have, everyone else will have, such that you're solving one problem that can really go across a number of customers. Because that's the challenge. There's so many problems in healthcare. Michael's got so many problems on his plate that he would love to be fixed, but what is common? Where can you build one thing that really can have product market fit in the area and help you take off? Because you can't just go whack-a-mole one problem after the next. And so what we think about and how we can help with our companies is how do we introduce you to as many health systems as can, as many smart people to say, what is the real issue we need to solve first? Yes, once you're successful, once you're in, eventually you can start to add on more. But what is that one narrow problem to work on? So take, for example, what our site's focusing on today, or like the priority for so many health systems across the country, provider burnout, staffing, and solving those issues. Focus on that first, then move on to some of these other issues. We'll get back to our show in just a minute. We have a great webinar coming up for you in April. We just finished our March one on April 6th at 1 p.m. Eastern time, the first Thursday of every month. We're going to have our leadership series. This one is on CISO priorities for 2023, Chief Information Security Officers. We have a great panel. We have Eric Decker with Intermountain, Shauna Hofer with St. Luke's Health System out of Boise, Idaho, 
and Vic Aurora with Hospital for Special Surgery. And we are going to delve into what are the priorities for security? What are we seeing? What are the new threat vectors? What is top of mind for this group? If you want to be a part of these webinars, and we would love to have you be a part of them, go ahead and sign up. You can go to our website, thisweekhealth.com. Top right-hand corner, you'll see our webinar. And when you get to that page, go ahead and fill out your information. Don't forget to put a question in there. One of the things that we do, I think that is pretty distinct, is we collect, like for today's webinar, we had 50 some odd questions that we utilized in order to make sure that the conversation is the conversation that you want us to have with these executives. So really appreciate you guys being a part of it and look forward to seeing you on that webinar. Now, back to the show. So I'm trying to think where I want to take this. This part of me wants to be selfish here and I have the two of you. You have a cool job, you have a cool job. What are you seeing? Like what's pushing the needle right now? What's something that you're looking at saying, hey, you know, I think in the next 12 to 24 months, we're going to see some real innovation that's going to impact health. We were both thinking right, the same right. thing. So I'll, I'll, I'll start, you can go. But my, my attention is right now all in the possibility of these generative AI tools, chat GPT, large language models, on how it can impact healthcare. If we zoom out over time, right, health IT fundamentally, whether it's our EMRs, the technologies, or robotic surgeries, have only increased costs in the healthcare system. They've added tools, often cases many providers will say have made their lives harder. We have a sea change moment where these technologies fundamentally can and will change provider issues. They'll make it easier to work with, they'll take issues off of their plate. And we're seeing this from startups to the biggest companies of all, right? We see the launch of Nuance, you know, acquired by Microsoft, now integrated with GPT-4 today. I know, that's and the technology works. So this is where my attention's going. I'm teaching a course starting in a couple weeks at Stanford on generative AI and medicine. You know, what initially we thought, oh, we'll keep it a small seminar, maybe 20 students. Another student in my course said, hey, Professor Norton, it filled up in three minutes. There's more than 50 people on the wait list. This is where the attention is going. This really does have a transformational potential within healthcare. 100% agree. It's a complete paradigm shift. What we have seen over the last three months with these large language models is going to be transformative, not only to healthcare, to every single industry. And as an innovation team that has been working on machine learning in healthcare for eight years now, seven years now, totally have leapfrogged where the technology is right now. And so now it's like super, super exciting. And a lot of the companies that we have been working with, their tech stacks are like obsolete now of where the AI is. And so it's just like, where, where can we go with these possibilities? And for me, the burning issue is like every health system in the country, as Justin hinted on, it's our workforce. And can I, take things off of my workforce's plate that they shouldn't be doing so they get more time back to spend with the patients but then also get to go home on time and have their own wellness and that's what's super exciting for me. How do you position this conversation when you're talking to clinicians, GPT-4 specifically? I mean, obviously Google has barred, I don't know where that's going. I did apply for the API for GPT-4 because I've played with it enough now that I'm sitting there going, Oh my gosh, I want to start feeding stuff into this. First of all, you get a, a larger amount of data you can actually feed into it, larger prompts and that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. But how do you position this conversation with the clinicians? Clearly we're not saying, hey, this is going to be a clinician. It's not going to be a doctor. But I'm curious, what's the conversation with clinicians so that they understand the potential and the value of it? So, at least the clinicians I've talked to, and I've, like you, 
just blown away with playing with GPT-4, just blown away. But I'm even more convinced playing with it that it's never going to replace a physician. It's never going to replace a, a, a clinician. I see it as almost like a, a virtual care assistant that sits next to the clinician. Maybe packages data like that super fast and provides that in a way that the clinician can digest it to make a decision, but the clinician is still going to make a decision. Where I see it being powerful and where my clinicians are already using it and excited about it are things like prior authorizations with the right. insurance company. Nobody enjoys doing that. Like everyone hates doing that. Like right off the top, GPT-4 could probably do that better than my physicians and my providers can do. And they can, that's where they're super excited. Now on the overall health system, it's actually not the clinicians that I'm needing to convince of where the opportunities are. It's actually like my privacy officer and you know, right. kind of concerns yeah. about you know, security of these models. And so that is a whole nother culture change and discussions that we're having within the system. But to go back to the very beginning, one of the places where people really want to know more about this are medical students. So I teach this past quarter a seminar on digital health and have almost a fourth of the entering medical students in the Stanford class. And right, they are gonna be full out providers and call it eight years, maybe more from today. And this isn't in the basic curriculum. It's not talking about AI and how large language models are going to affect their care. But on the other hand of the spectrum, it's what patients are using, right? There's stories now of people using ChatGPT to diagnose themselves, go through their blood work, well, that, read their imaging. That's sort of and the it's point. happening today. Like we we may not have teach it in the med schools and the doctors may not use it, but it's still going to get used. It, Exactly, and so that's why we need to have, I mean, even conversations like this, because as a clinician workforce, we have to be as knowledgeable about this. Otherwise, how are we helping our patients, right? We've always had Dr. Google, someone going through, going to Google search, hearing whatever they may find out, these tools just leveled up. They just got 10x more effective. And so patients are going to be coming in with these requests. And if we're not keeping up as a clinical workforce on top of the state of the art of these tools, we're not going to be meeting our patients where they need to. You just said eight years. And I'm thinking the change we saw from 3.5 to 4, <laughs> and I'm going, oh my gosh, what does 5 look like? It's crazy to talk about 5. I mean, 4 was released, what, a couple weeks a couple ago? Weeks yeah. Ago. Let's quantify the change from 3.5. So 3.5 was the base ChatGPT model released a few months ago in November. GPT-4 a couple weeks ago. 3.5, as people tested it on USMLE Step 2, the final exam of medical school, was basically at 60%, third percentile, just right. passing. W without images. Without images. Right. GPT-4, as of a couple weeks ago, this came out and said, okay, I need to test it. So we ran it through Step 2 exam again. It jumped up to 89%, which is roughly the 95th percentile. We just went from almost the bottom of a med school class to almost the top. This was without images. Microsoft last week released their own paper basically doing the same results and showing it could even do it on images as well. So what actually comes with GPT-5? What does that performance look like? It's going to be amazing, but even if you froze it, even if you stopped development today with some of these foundation models, it's we amazing. already have enough to completely transform workflows, prior auth, potentially patient messages, it's gonna put patient the education. It's going to put out of business. Oh, there will gosh. be no more electronic <laughs> health records. Thank you for, I thought we were at the top of the height cycle. Thank you for showing me that there's an, an even higher. <laughs> there's, still there's still room to go. <laughs> yeah. Oh gosh. Well, actually, we've gone a little long here, but hey, this is a great, we could do this for another half hour, I'm sure. Awesome. Easily. Thanks for having Michael, us. Michael, great. Justin, always great to see you. Oh, really appreciate it. Another great interview. 
I want to thank everybody who spent time with us at the conference. I love hearing from people on the front lines, and it's phenomenal that they've taken the time to share their wisdom and experience with the community. It is greatly appreciated. We want to thank our partners, CDW, Rubric, Sectra, and Trellix, who invest in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. Thanks for listening. That's all for now.